IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we talk about the heavily hyped NYC act, The Dare, and whether indie sleaze is actually a thing. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He regrets announcing his candidacy on Twitter spaces, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? I know one of our more delightful bits is treating Twitter like Lydia Soprano, like, you know, I just wish the Lord would take me now. But I mean, after yesterday, yesterday, is it like ever more clear that like Twitter is a completely washed app? Like, I mean, granted, you know, I got right back on it this morning. Uh, but it, it, this is having Ron DeSantis announce a president. See, like with Elon Musk, I mean, let me ask you this. Like, this is what I thought of when I had to gauge just how pathetic this seemed. Do you, did you, have you ever had a band approach you about premiering a song of theirs on your personal Twitter? Yes. Yeah. I have. A lot of people have. And what, how did you feel when a band did that? I don't know. I, I understand uh, like where they're coming from. And it's usually you know, a very complimentary email. Someone will write you and be like, oh, I've read all your books. I've you know, been reading you since I was in middle school. And oh, by the way, I'm in a band. And can you debut this song on your Twitter page? So you know, they're buttering you up. And I always believe that, oh, he's prob- this person's probably emailing Ian Cohen immediately after this, or, <laughs> or I'm immediately after Ian Cohen, or Christaville, or whoever <laughs> it may be. Uh, you're just going down the list. Uh, and you know, look, it's, it's hard. It's hard out there. You got to get publicity any way you can. In the case of Ron DeSantis, who, who again, for those who don't know, he announced his <laughs> candidacy for the President of the United States on Twitter. Twitter spaces. Uh, I think we have to be very clear, which I've never been on. Have you? I no, I've never been there, and I'm not entirely clear on what it is. Apparently, it's like a <laughs> meeting place where uh, you know you can gather people and engage in free speech and in debate and challenge ideas and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, apparently there were so many people trying to get in that it crashed repeatedly. So I heard it described as like the worst Zoom call of all time. Because <laughs> uh, it, it just took forever apparently for DeSantis to even get a word out because it just kept glitching and and crashing. And yeah, you know, Twitter, it is one of those things at this point where it definitely feels like a conservative app now. And you just wonder, like, it's kind of like living in a neighborhood that is slowly falling apart. And you're like, how long can I stay here? Because mm-hmm. uh, I don't really want to move. Moving is inconvenient. And I don't want to pack up all my stuff. So, okay, like, my car was broken into for the second time in the past month. That's okay. I'll just tape it up. It won't be a big deal. That's kind of where we're at with Twitter. I'm not on the verge of leaving. I'm not going to Blue Sky, whatever that uh, thing is. And I still haven't gotten an invite yet, by the way. Have you? <laughs> no, but I'm not going to do the thing where you grovel All for right. an invite. That, we got pride I don't, here. I, well, I'm saying that now. <laughs> Maybe I will eventually. But um, 
I don't know. It seems a little unbecoming because you see people on one app gra- like just groveling for an invite to a different app. <laughs> and it's like, do, you, do we really need more social media apps? I feel like this is going in the wrong direction. I think that we should be pushing ourselves in the other direction away from social media in general, not towards other social media apps. Of course, I say this as a person who's who has some anxiety about Twitter falling apart because this is my job writing for a living and social media has been beneficial to me. So I, when I hear that we're moving in a post-social media world, I mean, that's what all of the smart media prognosticators are talking about. I know you're reading the Ben Smith book, yeah. Traffic, which I recently finished. That's his big thing. That yeah, no, no spoilers. Social. By the way, did uh, did 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 Buzzfeed end up thriving? Is Gawker killing it still? No, no spoilers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, let's put that aside for now. That's a little too depressing to contemplate <laughs> the Twitter Spaces thing. I want to bring up something that's gloomy, but gloomy in a fun way, which is the Cure, which we talked about last week. But I wanted to bring him up again this week quick because you you saw them, was, was it last weekend? Yeah, last Saturday. Last Saturday. And I'm going to be seeing them next month. So, And I'm really excited. I've never seen The Cure before. Uh, but I saw you tweeting about it. You were posting a lot of photos. And I think you even talked about the set list a little bit and stuff. Can you just talk about this? I mean, it looked like it was a great show. Yeah, great, great show. Um if you look at the set list beforehand, you could get an outline of what you're probably going to get. Um, but they're also going to throw in some like, you know, new, like new to this tour type stuff. You know, they played If Only Tonight We Could Sleep, which I know was nice. a personal shout out to me because that's the one the Deftones covered. Um, but yeah, I think that, I mean, it was just great crowd watching, just such great vibes in that crowd. Um, I love going to shows like this and seeing what t-shirts are popping. Uh, unfortunately, not too many bands from like the 21st century, but you know, for all, I feel like when you go on Twitter nowadays, uh, there's always talk about like how Robert Smith hated Morrissey with like all of his, you know, every drop of blood in his body. And of course, like you see just like a ton of Morrissey t-shirts there, which, you know, lets you to believe that, like, A, people aren't very aware of the interpersonal dynamics between those two and that the Smiths are definitely not canceled in certain circles. Um, oh, yeah. no, 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 not at I, all. I mean, I, I mean, I've said this about cancellations in pop culture all the time, that the only people that can cancel you are the people who love you, you know? Right. So the people who hate Morrissey and just go on about all the terrible things that he says, I mean, they don't have as much power as it might seem, even though, like, in the media, Morrissey's profile is terrible. I mean, anyone who writes about Morrissey now is sort of obligated to take shots at him. But, yeah, if you're going to a Cure concert, yeah, you're going to see a lot of Smiths fans because, I mean, never you know, never mind the animus between Robert Smith and Morrissey. I mean, clearly, the same type of people like both bands. So, it... It, it wouldn't surprise me to, to see that in the audience. I did think it was interesting, like, last Friday, the day that our previous episode posted, Andy Rourke, the great bass player of the Smiths, he passed away, sadly. I think he was 64. And yeah, he was, like, not that old. I want to say he was, like, 59, I think. Yeah, and I, I believe he had cancer. Uh, so, yeah, he's a young man, very sad uh, to see him pass away. But his death was a way for people 
to once again talk online about how much they love the Smiths. It was like a way, it, it, like his death in a way, it temporarily divorced Morrissey from the Smiths. And you could just mm-hmm. talk about like how great of a bass player Andy Rourke is. So there was something kind of liberating about that. I mean, even Morrissey posted like a nice remembrance <laughs> of Andy Rourke when he died. So it's like, oh, wow, Morrissey's not being an asshole. Like, wow, this is amazing. So as sad as, as that occasion was, it was like, well, this is the good that comes out of it. You know, we can all bond once again over the Smiths. Um, but yeah, man, again, it sounds like the set list was amazing. It was just covering like the whole spectrum of the Cure's mm-hmm. career. Like how were the new uh, songs? So I'm, there was so much new material that I think that we cannot deny that a new album's coming out. They played at least four new songs, um, including oh, wow. the first song they played. And um, <laughs> I know that, I know how this sounds because Robert Smith has been saying this for like the past 15 years, but it is definitely more along the lines of like disintegration or blood flowers. You know, I think that's kind of the uh, ceiling that we can hope for here where the songs are like eight minute long intros. And then Robert Smith just puts in the most like uh, phoned in rain pain, like sky die lyrics that uh, you can possibly think of. If you look at the song titles, they're like just super generic as well. That being said, uh, they sounded great. I mean, I don't know what moves Robert Smith at this moment to uh, write music. There was one song about his brother dying, which I found to be interesting. Like maybe that's going to be the emotional um core of the record and that one really stood out to me but otherwise i mean it's cure doing cure stuff um it sounded great like how it's gonna be experienced if it's like on a actual new album that you have to kind of take in its own context i don't know but i think the takeaway from it is that like we're gonna get a new album it's just like too there's too much of it and too important in the set list to like not happen um, and it makes me also wonder whether it might be a surprise drop. You know, I think that's, I, I can't imagine with these songs being the way they are like, Hey, we got a new single. Here's like four more, you know, cause I think this is going to be like an eight song album tops. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that they would wait until after this tour, presumably to release an album, unless, it is a surprise, like you're theorizing, and they do it in the middle of the tour, just because there's been so much goodwill about you know in, in the press about this band in, in recent months. And you know, like I wrote a big piece about the Cure. There was like a big list piece on the Ringer about the Cure. Like Rolling Stone wrote a thing about the Cure, calling uh, this tour like one of the big tours of the summer. Um, you know, there's been Cure mania in the press lately, uh, so it seems like to not have a new album to capitalize that seems like a missed opportunity. Although maybe the tour itself will, it'll be like a reverse thing where instead of the album building towards a tour, the tour will build toward the album. Like people will feel so good about seeing this band live that they'll be more inclined to check out a new cure record. Um, I think that's kind of the move here because these songs themselves, like, I'm more like uh, if I were to hear them like in a studio, I would think, okay, more cure cool. But putting them in the context of like, you know, burn, like which I think would be a, you know, a very high peak for them to hit. I think, okay, I I get what they're doing. And the tour softens me to having a, you know, more of a uh, more excitement for what's going to be like very much like cure doing cure things. 
You know, I uh, interviewed Jason Isbell this week, and we ended up talking about The Cure for a little bit in this interview because he's a Cure fan, and he saw, I think, the opening show of this tour in New Orleans, and he was raving about the new songs and how he liked them because they sounded like Disintegration. Mm-hmm. So that does seem like... I mean, first of all, it was interesting to talk about The Cure with like the epitome of like Americana music. You know, you think of like that being the opposite of what the cure is, but even Jason Isbell likes the cure. And that does make sense because he's also a 44 year old man. So, <laughs> you know, that ultimately outweighs any sort of like genre trappings that he signifies. Um, but yeah, I don't know, like the way you're describing it, it actually makes me excited to hear these songs live because I think that is the best case scenario. Like I, I would want new cure songs to just have really long intros and, you know, you have a bit of like Robert Smith contemplating the waves or the rain mm. or the clouds in his classic Robert Smith voice. Yeah, this is like end of the world stuff. Yeah. I thought, and I can't remember if we talked about this last week, but I, I thought I read something that he was going to make the moon landing part of this album concept. Yeah, there was a moon. Uh, it, like that was the backdrop when they played these songs, and I think the album's been oh. called like "Songs for a Lost World." Um, I was wondering if like maybe it was like there's some climate change stuff going on there, but yeah, moon landing, oh. um, moon landing, climate change. I mean, look, these are all things that like Robert Smith have like has dealt with throughout his entire life, like moons, rain, like the world ending this shit's right in his wheelhouse but i think hey if that's what it does like get him like you know up to speed on 2020 uh vibes you know pr releases you know what good for him he's a canny dude i I trust robert smith's direction he's proven himself (laughs) yeah i mean he kind of went in the opposite direction where you know oh this song features taylor swift or (laughs) this song features dua lipa or i've got sufian stevens doing orchestral parts on this song, you know, like just a ton of features to make it feel more contemporary. I mean, that would, I think, be the worst case scenario for like a new Cure record. Like you just want the Cure to be timeless and outside of whatever else is going on in the culture. And there's no way Robert Smith would do that anyway. That's always been his MO to, you Mm. know, not fit in. Uh, But yeah, it is funny to think like, oh yeah, what if... um, you know, he invited like Phoebe Bridgers to sing on the song. <laughs> like, if that was like what the new Cure record was going to be, there's just going to be like a new sort of hot young pop star like feature on every new song. The only band Robert Smith has liked, I think, in the past twenty years is the Twilight Sad. Um, <laughs> yeah, they they actually open. Like I said, like oh, that would be kind of neat if they did. And even though it wasn't announced anywhere on like the bill or on the website, like the first, I'm like, wait a minute, this looks like the twilight sad coming out. And they did. And they played songs from 2012 and forward, even though their first two albums rule. Um, that's like a pretty good gig. They, like the twilight sad more or less exists right now to, or have existed for the past five or so years, simply to open for the cure. That's not a bad situation <laughs> to be in. Right. Right. Very cool. Congrats to the Twilight Sad. Um, let's get to the dare. I want to talk about the dare with you because there's been a lot of conversation about this band. Are we calling them a band? Uh, they're a project. Project? Duo? I don't know. We'll call it a project. 
Uh, there's been a lot of conversation about uh, the Dare and uh, their new EP. It's the Sex EP, and uh, I feel like the critical discourse on this is largely negative. Um, but there's been a tremendous amount of hype, and it's interesting because you know I was going on Spotify, and it's not like the Dare has a ton of spins. I think like the biggest song on the Sex EP is Girls, and that has just under <laughs> three million. This is so but, funny like, no that. More- they have the the 1975 have a song called Girls and a Sex EP and this is like their their epitome of like what indie sleaze is like from 2013. Yeah. But it's like it's not like it's taking over the world in terms of like streaming or numbers, but in terms of the media there's been a lot of hype and people are looking at this as some sort of bellwether for what is known as indie sleaze. And I want to talk about indie sleaze here in a minute after we talk about the dare. But for those who don't know, just a little bit of background. And this is from Paper Magazine, which I believe is now defunct. Yeah. Good good on you for finding that. That's a, that's a relic. Paper Magazine in 2022. This was a profile written about the dare. Just an excerpt previously known for putting up music under the name Turtlenecked. <laughs> oh, what kind of band was Turtlenecked? Uh, I'll tell you what band Turtlenecked was. Um, this is so, this band is like five years removed from having like Ian Cohn from Pitchfork text me visual jokes in their video. It was like it was. Uh, here's how I remember Turtleneck, and this is gonna be so fucking in the weeds that I um, I kind of I feel fifty years old and want to die. This guy, I mean, is there a short version? Like, are, yeah. are they an emo band? <laughs> They're like kind of punk shit posty emo from the mid aughts, kind of like quasi teen suicide car seat headrest beef era. Uh, yeah, they just made yeah they were they were an indie rock band. They kind of sounded like blog rock, but also like Pavement or Archers of Loaf, and they had one. Okay. Gloss is a good song. I ain't gonna front. Okay, all right. Well, I think we got the idea. So a band called Turtlenecked. The Dare is. Harrison Patrick Smith's new foray, foray into the world of house, techno, and electroclash. A resident DJ at Home Sweet Home, whatever the hell that is, uh, the Dare sees Smith bridging the gap between the finely tuned pop sensibilities and place in New York's thriving underground nightlife scene. Is it thriving? Is it is underground it really if all we York? do is read about it? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I. It's been a while since there's been a buzzy New York thing. I mean, and that's part of the conversation about the dare. There, There's a lot of self-actualization going on, I think, with this group, where you have a contingent of people, whether it's in the media, the record industry, or just like in the trend-watching business, which I hate saying that, but apparently <laughs> that's an industry. There's a strong desire for New York to matter again, because it has not mattered in terms of indie music uh, since the early 2000s. It's been a while. I guess towards the end, of, like just the aughts in general. Because mm. uh, it's basically too expensive to live in New York. A lot of people moved out, went to Philadelphia, Baltimore, places like that. Um, hearkening back to the days when LCD Sound System and The Rapture reigned supreme with their mix of indie synth pop and punk, Girls, which is the breakout track for The Dare, channels the same sardonic vocals and supercharged beat that would have fit right at home between a classic Taiga cut or a Rex the Dog remix. 
Featuring plenty of bubbling acid synths and a thick, roaring bass line, the track is a fun mix of hedonism and jaded musings on modern-day romance, all wrapped in a simple yet catchy hook. <laughs> so, the sex EP, it takes three more songs and it packages it around that song, Girls, which was a breakout hit last year. And it's released as this EP, which again has a really elicited hostility from music critics. A lot of anger out there mm. about this group. And look, I have two thoughts here that I had while listening to this EP, and I'm curious for your take and as well as just what you think about the Dare in general. Number one, you know, my first thought about this record was just imagining myself if I was 23 years old in 2022 and like how like the prime years of like being young, like being a young person, which, you know, let's say that starts at like 17, 18 years old as you're getting ready to leave high school, going to college or just kind of doing your post high school life. That five-year run, like in the last five years, like it hasn't been great <laughs> if you're 23 years old because, you know, half that time you've been in quarantine, which is awful. And then before and after that, you've been part of this culture that is scoldy at best and puritanical at worst. Like, there's a lot of talk now when we talk about music that it either is about Trump's America or unpacking trauma or empowerment. And there's just like not a lot of dumb hedonism that has been in pop culture lately. And I can see that if you're a 23-year-old person and you've been kind of like in this like suppressive environment during your prime being young years that like a record like this might be refreshing, regardless of its artistic qualities. So that's my first thought. My second thought is that I feel like music critics in general in this moment don't really know what to do with like quote unquote horny music that doesn't have some sort of like political agenda attached to it. Like I feel like now when we talk about like sex positive music, it is wrapped up in this sort of jargon again of empowerment or of sexual liberation I think you see that, for instance, in the current album cycle for Janelle Monet, like the way she's positioning her upcoming record. I think there's a band from New York that we talked about earlier this year called Model Actress that you and I both like that I think does something similar to the dare, but like on a more elevated, in some respects, academic level that mm. is more amenable to like how critics talk about this kind of thing. I mean, the dare has no ideology at all. It's a straight white guy talking about girls and sex and drugs. And I think because of that, it elicits a different kind of response from the other, again, more elevated forms of horny music, mm. if we can make that a genre. Uh, so I don't know. Does any of that make sense to you? I, you know, I will say that like with the dare, if we're just talking about the music of it, I wish these songs were either like a little bit better or like a whole lot worse. <laughs> like, I think the most damning thing about this record is that it's pretty mid, you know, like they get compared to LCD sound system. I mean, there's no like losing my edge here. Wow. But even if you were to compare them to someone like The Bravery, who is like a guilty pleasure of mine from that era, there's nothing here like as enjoyably trashy as like an honest mistake. 
right. you know, which I think is like a legitimately good song. There's like a lot of craft to that, but it's also, I think of that as like an OG indie sleaze type song. <laughs> um, there's nothing that elevated, but also like I don't think this record is like as unlistenable or terrible as some of like the harsher critiques give it. it again, I think I think Pitchfork gave it a five point eight. Mm-hmm. That actually feels like a pretty accurate score to me. I might go a little bit lower, but again, it's like a mediocre record. It's not terrible, and it's not like really fun in a transgressive kind of way. Um, but again, I think what people are responding to is like what this record represents and maybe what it's reacting against, like what we've had in indie culture and discourse in the last several years. Yeah. I mean, this weekend I listened to physical graffiti and, you know, specifically trampled underfoot, which, you know, led me to oh, believe man. that more songs need to be about like sex or thinly veiled car metaphors for sex. And that's really about it. Or like rock and roll needs to be about car sex or hobbits. Led Zeppelin had it right the first time. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, for a band like this, since I'm not 23, um, I've kind of taken a, you know, Darren Rovell, I feel bad for this country, but this is tremendous content take. Like, I'm just trying to find the take that will get me the most interested in following this. And, you know, being a hater seems like way, that's like way too easy for this band. Um, but on the other hand, you're right in which I, I like if they had reached the level of the bravery, I would like ride for this way harder than would be, you know, warranted. But I think the kind of trouble with this band is, you know, to bring it back to traffic, from what I know of Turtleneck and this guy's like whole deal, it's like in the book you read about like how Jonah Peretti's just been obsessed with metrics and traffic and just kind of like virality and you know, this guy, Harrison Smith, he just seems like kind of a shit poster who found a bit that worked and now they just kind of have to run with it. And I mean, with, I think just the kind of general issue with this in the first place is that it doesn't, it's kind of in this weird midpoint between like wanting to be like Kings of Leon or the killers of those other bands that get like a little bit of airtime and meet me in the bathroom but also like a New York band like LCD Sound System or The Rapture. And it's just kind of in between because uh, we just don't have really the infrastructure to have a Killers or have a Bravery. And so, I mean, I don't know, like, I don't know what the future holds for them, but I mean, we're going to get into the broader combo about like indie sleaze, you know, in a bit. And I think this gets into why I don't feel like a project like this can really work because it, it, for both them and the people trying to engage with it, it's a reaction to a lot of things. But, you know, the original indie sleaze was like, you know, it was framed as like a reaction to like 9-11 or the war in Iraq or the George W. Bush presidency, like all of which we could agree with. Like these were bad things. But, you know, a band like The Dare or Indie Sleaze is like reacting, you know, to like Bodies in Spaces core or in that, you know, in unpacking trauma, which like, I think it by and large are like generally good things, although like can be aggravating when they're like cynically taken up by PR. So there's kind of like a no win situation for a band like this, where they either have to be like super well, shitty or like actually too good to ignore. I mean, I think there's two ways looking at it. You can look at it, like you said, as 
a band like this being a reaction to like wokeism, and I, I'm sorry to use that term, <laughs> but like there's no other way to describe it. I guess you said bodies and spaces core. Maybe that's like a softer way of saying that. I think you could frame it that way, but I also feel like it's as much a reaction to COVID and the lockdowns. And and that is, in a way, something that is as momentous as 9-11 was oh, absolutely. in the early 2000s. Yeah. And maybe even more so, because you do have this generation of young people who, like, if you were in high school or in college during uh, the quarantine, like, you lost, like, a good part of your being young years. Like, just being trapped, like, in your mm. apartment or your home. Like, maybe you're living with your parents during that time. So... If, if you're part of that generation, I totally get, like, how you might just want something really stupid <laughs> that's about sex and drugs. And by the way, can we just say that, like, this idea that it's exotic or a novelty for an artist to be obsessed with sex and drugs, like, really <laughs> says something about, like, where we're at as a culture right now. Because, by and large, if you look at the history of popular music, no matter what the genre is... Sex and drugs are, like, a big thing. It's, like, maybe the main subject of, like, rock songs, rap songs, blues songs, country songs, all the way down the line. Any kind of popular music. Got a lot of sex. You got a lot of drugs or partying, things of that nature. So, you know, to look at this as, like, some sort of, like, wow, he's really obsessed with this as a young man. I don't know. I think that says something about how we've been... Talking about these issues, I think, in a very academic way. Mm-hmm. You know, again, I think for music critics, it's much more acceptable if you couch these types of issues in the language of academia rather than in the language of just like young, dumb, horny people. <laughs> uh, that it becomes easier to take umbrage to it when. I think for a lot of people, there's maybe something refreshing about that, that we can maybe take the ideology out of these things and just be like, well, we want to, we want songs about this because it's fun, you know? And in the abstract, I'm in favor of that. I just don't know if this band or project is a worthy vessel for that. It it remains to be seen. You know, this guy only has like four songs. Yeah. None of which we've really even talked about on this episode besides like the fact they exist. (laughs) I'll say, you know, like the song Sex, for instance. Yeah. It's a pretty solid song. It's, it's catchy. I think yeah. all I think all these songs are pretty catchy. Like Girls Again was the big breakout. And that is like a shit posty type song. You know, like talking about like he likes girls who are pregnant and you know, stuff like that. It does not seem like something that is meant to be taken seriously. It feels like a novelty song in a lot of ways. And I don't know if he has any other bullets in his gun where he can again, not even have a losing my edge. Does he have an honest mistake in him? You Mm -hmm. know, I'd love to hear that. And if he did, I would be first in line for the dare because that trashy era of like, you know, New York city indie, like I'm, I have a, I have nostalgia for it as someone who lived through that era. Um, Although it is funny again, you know, like when we talk about New York, like this indie sleaze thing, it does underline the fact that people move to New York because they want to live in the New York of 20 years ago. <laughs> you know, like, like it's funny to me that we're romanticizing the early aughts New York scene in this way because at the time, there were a lot of people who said, you guys are just 
aping the New York City of the late 70s. You know, that was the criticism of even the best artists of that time. Like, LCD Sound System, who people now are protective of because the dare is supposedly ripping them off. I mean, the LCD Sound System is, like, incredibly derivative mm-hmm. as a band. They kind of made that part of their identity. There's, like, a meta derivativeness to, like, what they're doing. Uh, but then you look at the late seventies, New York, and it's like, well, they were just trying to be like the beats, the beat writers of like the forties and fifties in New York, you know? So it's like people move to New York because they want to live 20 years in the past, like the, 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 the New York that they imagined when they were kids. And that's why they want to move there. Um, but yeah, let's talk about indie sleaze here as, as just a phenomenon, uh, because it is worth unpacking a little bit and scrutinizing whether this even actually exists. Because I think that's been at least one of the talking points with this. Like, I think there's a lot of skepticism <laughs> about whether this is a real phenomenon or if it's something that people are trying to will into existence. And I, I just want to read this excerpt. This is from a story in Harper's Bazaar from January 2022. So just to show, this has been like a thing now for like a year and a half, at least. At least in the media. Um The hipster aesthetic, now dubbed Indie Sleaze, has been tapped for a comeback. Trend cycles have sped up to such a degree that the Vanguard cool kids uh, are now idolizing a time that was barely 10 years in the past. A viral TikTok by Brooklyn-based trend forecaster Mandy Lee suggests there's an obscene amount of evidence, that's in quotes, that the aesthetic is coming back, citing a paparazzi photo of Bella Adid sporting wired headphones. <laughs> what? Yeah, you can't deny that okay. shit. But the evidence extends much farther than that, thank goodness. Margaret Qualley lounges suggestively in lace ankle socks for the latest cover of Home Girls magazine. Cass Blackbird, a photographer who was around for the first iteration of Indie Sleaze, took the photos. Kirsten Dunst appears on the November 2021 issue of Architectural Digest, Wearing the mid aught <laughs> staple of black ankle-length leggings under a bohemian-style dress. Incredible sentence there. Yes. Architectural Digest. <laughs> it's arch- architectural I need to pitch Architectural but- Digest. If there's no money, it's like, hey, you interested in the uh, new Home is Wear record, guys? Yeah, man. They're, they're setting the trends here. Uh, this is a quote. Indie sleaze feels very vague, but also super specific at the same time. <laughs> It's American Apparel ads, Flash Photography, Urban Outfitters, Ed Banger Records, Nylon Magazine, and MySpace, says Ilya Espaldi, a 24-year-old video editor from Greece who is just one of a growing cohort of Gen Z obsessed people of Gen Z people obsessed with dressing like it's 2008. I love how random and tacky it is. Uh, so I feel about 200 years old after reading that excerpt. I love it like when people describe things as tacky and random. <laughs> That's when I know that we've really hit upon something valuable here. Um, so really, okay, so, and, and, and this was kind of the beginning, like, of, of people talking about this in the media. And, and again, we're basing it on a viral TikTok by a Brooklyn-based trend forecaster. Like, that's where this comes from. And I think that's the reason why a lot of people are skeptical about whether this thing even exists. Even though, to circle back to something I was saying before... I do think that there is some kind of reaction maybe brewing to like culture in the 2000s, 2010s. I mean, that maybe people, you know, this, the pendulum is maybe swinging in a different direction from like what we had 
during the Trump years. I do think that there might be something to that, even if I'm skeptical that this is something that is real beyond just something that like a trend watcher from Brooklyn might say in a TikTok. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I feel like there's just been talk of indie sleaze in the water for longer than from when that Harper's Bazaar thing was posted. But um, yeah, because it... Well, when do you think it started? Like, <sighs> when do you think that derives from? You know, I think that, and this gets to like a bigger point I've thought about with like whether or not this is a thing or whether anything, you know, any of these micro trends we talk about is a thing. Um, I think especially during COVID, um, I'm, I'm just like thinking back to the times when like me and a couple of friends were like considering doing a Zoom blog rock DJ night, um, like where pop culture is just so atomized that you can find evidence of anything being popular. Um, so I, I think like we, if we were to trace this back, it would certainly have to be towards at some point, like not like early to mid early COVID, uh, for the exact reasons you mentioned, you know, we're all locked inside and we just, you know, want, we want to like just be dumb and irresponsible, um, in ways that, uh, you know, people seem to be in 2003 or 2008. And I think it's, you know, I think it says a lot that, um, people are conflating those two eras because like the Ed Banger era of like 2007, the Blockhouse days and the dance punk days, very different. But, you know, this gets into, uh, like why it's hard to take this seriously as like an actual thing rather than a wish to be like a form of wish fulfillment, which is that, I don't know if like the Spotify indie sleaze playlist is like the definitive article, but I looked at it and like one of the first songs I saw was Animal Collective, My Girls, which, um, and also there was like Crystal Castles and Ariel Pink on there. So, you know, both completely meaningless and way too on the nose uh, at the same time. But but that always happens, though. Yeah. I think like when people from younger generations recontextualize like a music scene from 20 years ago, they always group things together that people who were there would not have done. I mean, the analogy I would make is that in the early 2000s, people were comparing the Strokes to the Ramones just because they wore leather jackets <laughs> when they really had nothing else in common right? other than that. Uh, so I think if you weren't there, you're always going to get it a little bit wrong. But at the same time, that becomes how these things are remembered. So like, who's to say what's right or wrong? I agree, because there's nothing really sleazy about Animal Collective. Or My you Girls, know, like which is like the least sleazy <laughs> song. Like, it is like the exact... Like, yeah, I guess it's indie because it was on, like, Domino. But, like, yeah, the exact opposite in terms of sentiment. Like, I've seen people get married to my girls. Like, indie sleaze should at least bring back memories of, like, getting fucking blown off sparks and, like, wearing a Deep V Animal Cl- or Deep V American Apparel t-shirt. And, you know, my girls, this, that, my girls doesn't do that, yo. <laughs> yeah, but, it, you know, it signifies indie music of the 2000s, which right. I think is what if you're again 23 that's like what you are looking at with that kind of playlist so it all gets grouped together uh so yeah i don't know to me that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a real thing I, i i again i just go back to the streaming numbers for the dare like he's not yet on the level of even like big indie people at this point I was surprised by those numbers. I feel like those must have been like refreshed or something like that because yeah, I mean like the the like two like these are like uh, not very impressive 
numbers, you know? Like, they're like, I imagine, uh, I'm just going to look up, yeah, it's like modest indie band numbers. Like, it's about, he's got the same amount of monthly listeners right now as, like, the whole Steady. Right, like, the the official music video for Girls, which has been up for nine months, has 73,000 views on YouTube, which is respectable, but, like, you know, does that elicit the kind of does that justify the kind of like oh i'm getting written about in gq as the next big thing like i don't know i think there's an idea or again like a hope that this is a bellwether of something and i don't necessarily see evidence of that yet i mean this may just be a thing like where the dare are like the moldy peaches and like the strokes of this scene are in the wings and they just haven't entered yet you know maybe like the great band of indie sleaze uh, will be here. And, you know, maybe that is like Model Actress. You know, I've seen Model Actress brought up this week as a counterpoint to the D.A.R.E. as being like, this is like a more intelligent version of Indie Sleaze coming out of New York. And maybe that will be a band that, although they're they're even smaller than the D.A.R.E. I mean, they're not, they're not even as popular as the D.A.R.E. is at, is at this point. Um, or you know maybe that band is still waiting to be seen. I don't know. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of hot air though with mm-hmm. this kind of music and 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 the talk of, of this scene. And I mean, do you hope it's for real? Do you have any hope that like okay, we're gonna get like some trashy bands and maybe it'll be fun like to write about this stuff? Oh, absolutely. Like I know how you said that Harper's uh, Bazaar thing made you feel two hundred years old, but like any time there's like a um a revisitation of stuff where like i felt like i was in my prime i'm like hell yeah it's it is time for me to be it is time for me to like come in like swoop in as a 43 year old expert and uh, i i'm hoping though that like indie sleaze like doesn't just limit itself to sounding like you know the rapture lcd sound system i i really wish we could rush release the 20th anniversary of death from above 1975 you're a woman i'm a machine because that to me is like the truest form of indie sleaze in that it was released on like Vice Records, they're Canadian, like the entire out, al- it's like a noise rock album about like a breakup and like just responding to that by doing drugs and being shitty. I mean, granted, that band is existing in some form of soft cancellation because I think they're, I think one of the guys was seen with the Proud Boys, don't quote me on that. Uh, but yeah, I'm like, I'm hoping it like kind of gets out of just like, New York focused and takes on other people's perspectives on it. Because I mean, there was just some great like elevated, but also kind of dumb music from that time. I think the rapture encapsulates that because, you know, it was DFA. It was based in, you know, like disco and dance punk and a lot of credible stuff. But, and I say this with love, uh, house of jealous lovers, really fucking stupid song. And it it's oh yeah, it but amazing rules too. <laughs> well, and you brought up the Kings of Leon Killers comparison before. Like, yeah, can we get like a an indie sleaze band from Tennessee? That'd be pretty awesome. I'd like to see like a Southern indie sleaze band that was like kind of sexy and danceable, but like also uh, has a little bit of that Southern rock quality to them. A little bit of chugal in what they're doing. <laughs> like that could be a pretty magical combination. Um, you brought up the 1975 earlier, and I think that's an interesting thing because they're like the Rolling Stones of this scene at this point. Like they're <laughs> they're like in their tattoo you 
era, you know, even though it's only been 10 years, like they're, they're like the granddaddies of this kind of thing, even though they're like, are they still like sleazy? I mean, they're like relatively sleazy. Maybe they'll, I feel like they've been de-sleazed right. over time. Yeah. I, I think he's too, cer- and I say cerebral, meaning that he's like very like self-reflexive and you know, consider it like there's something very meta about like his sex and his drugs and like what it means for his persona. It's like hard for them to be just like, you know, the thing is the thing. Um, I would think that like the 1975 is sleazy compared to like, you know, other people who operate in that space. But um, yeah, you're right. Like rolling, it is like damn near Rolling Stones tattoo you. I'm going to have to trust you on tattoo you because I can't like, I can't wrap my head around like where that is in terms of the Rolling Stone discography, but they are more like, that's 1981. Okay. That's like 20 years into their career. And it's a great record, but it's like 20 years into their career. So, and then 1975 are only 10 years into their career, but you know, time I think now is, it moves faster. So they may be in that period. Um, Do we want to talk quick about, the reunion rumors for two <laughs> groups that are near and dear to our hearts. There reunion rumors for Oasis and for modern baseball. Yeah. Which is modern <laughs> baseball even less likely than Oasis? I feel like Oasis at this point is going to happen just because there's going to be like a billion dollars on the table and Noel Gallagher can only do so many high flying birds tours where he's just like, why not just sell out Wembley Stadium five nights in a row and make a gajillion dollars? There was a story this week that they were actually like starting to like look at venues for a reunion <laughs> tour, and then Liam and Noel. Well, Noel said that he's been trying to reach out to Liam, and Liam won't respond. So Noel called Liam a coward. <laughs> just great. I love when I love it when I love it when someone accuses you of being a coward. A coward is like such a funny, like put down, because uh, it's kind of old fashioned, you know. Like you, like you won't, you won't face me in a duel, you coward, <laughs> and like you slap him across the face with a white glove. And then Liam went on Twitter and he called Noel a coward because Noel wouldn't play that benefit concert for Manchester, like when there was the bombing at at the Ariana Grande concert. Like Liam played that, but Noel didn't. So Liam called Noel a coward because of that. So they're sniping, but they're gonna they're gonna kiss and make up. But there was a thing this week talking about emo greats, modern baseball, and I should let you take this. There was like a fake Twitter account that got yeah. people excited about a a reunion. Yeah, I, I I love the fact that like the fact that uh, Noel and Liam are talking. It's like, well, if they're talking, you know that that might lead to something, but. Yeah, with modern baseball, it's – I mean, I, 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 I made like a joke like, yeah, they're kind of the oasis of the uh, emo revival scene. But in reality, I think t- title fight probably fits that bill because they're brothers and they don't necessarily fight, but they don't seem particularly interested in it. But um, there was a pretty convincing fake Twitter account that posted as modern baseball. Like, what's fifth wave emo? And then all – I didn't see it myself, but then like I see people who I follow and I trust generally talk. There was just like modern baseball in the air. Like, oh, what? Like I heard they're going to uh, play that Wonder Years festival that's going on later in Philly or I don't know, 10 year reunion for you're going to miss it all. And look, uh, I, I, I imagine. And also like 
do people really want to have a modern baseball reunion? Because things ended like in a pretty definitive way where we're like, yeah, for their like mental health, they need to break up. And I haven't heard a single thing from Brendan uh, in the time since. Of course, Jake has done Slaughter Beach Dog. But next year is going to be super interesting on that front because you have like 10-year reunions, 10-year anniversaries for like modern baseball and like Foxing's the Albatross and, you know, the hotel years, a home like no place is there. Like bands who have like in one way, shape or form totally moved on from that and like kind of don't want to revisit it. But I don't know. Like, I mean, are you yay or nay on a modern baseball reunion? Well, it, uh, it's entirely dependent on like where Brendan is at at this point, because as you said, there was, uh, I mean, I don't know exactly what happened with him, but there's definitely mental health issues going on. I think the pressure of being in a band, the pressure of being in the public eye, even in a band like that, where they're not hugely popular, but like that DIY emo punk scene is such a fishbowl and you're under such scrutiny. I mean, we've seen lots of examples, I feel like, in that world in recent years where bands implode because it's just like an intense fan base Mm -hmm. you know it can be really difficult i think to be a star in that scene in a way that maybe being like a rock star or a pop star is relatively easy because you there's like a layer of insulation that goes on if you're like really popular but if you're like this diy scene it's so much more like your fans are so much closer to you and your fans can like turn on you in weird ways, and I don't know. It seems like a really hard thing to do. So, you know, if Brendan is in a good place, then I'm yay. If Brendan is not, or if Brendan is content at the moment without modern baseball, then I would say nay. Yeah, I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, like, it could be fun, but only if they want it to be fun, you know? I don't want, like, and also I want them, you know, just to be comfortable and, like, have it be something that's, like, legit fun like maybe just like a show or two in philly the way you blew it uh a band that broke up in 2016 did you know they played some shows like in florida at like a bar and they looked awesome and people were having a fucking blast but they weren't like dragging ass through i don't know kansas city on a tuesday night so um again i'm not demanding them to come back it would be cool but only if they do it on their own terms and shout out to modern baseball i think they were like the Second or third guest on Celebration Rock, <laughs> my old podcast, like back in the day. Day ones, baby. In-person interview. Yeah, that was like on the rise during the good times in modern baseball's history. We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? So, you know, I'm, I'm, when I talk about being excited about modern baseball and, like, the bands that kind of sound like them, they're, they're, I've probably said this before, but there are times where I'm, like, on the verge, in the same way I'm on the verge of quitting Twitter, of, like, going full-on electronic because it's kind of hard for me to get into a lot of guitar music because it's kind of derivative, even of the stuff I like, but... So lately I've been uh, looking into two of the bigger electronic releases of w- recent times. One is an artist called Blavon. They had a song called Why They Buy Why They Hide the Be- Bodies Under My Garage. Their new EP Dismantled Into Juice and like a really hyped uh, album from Overmono called Good Lies that came out a few weeks ago. Um, 
you know, my interest in electronic music, it's either it's got to be super pretty or it's just got to like totally bang. And these ones just bang in their own way. Blavon's more of like an abrasive, every instrument sounds like a meat locker sort of thing where I've heard Overmonter described as like kind of the disclosure of 2023 in that they're brothers. They've had singles that have been hyped up uh, for a while, but the album itself doesn't have as much of like a, you know, H&M pop sort of thing. There are no Sam Smith uh guests on this i like these two together because they're both very uh short you know one's 18 minutes one's like 37 if you put them together i think you could arguably get like the fourth fuck buttons album which i want more i mean they're definitely not oh, getting back together but yeah i think with these two uh it's very good like throw on at the gym throw on in your car um so yeah i imagine for certain electronic connoisseurs that are probably like you know washed or like you know a little too overhyped but uh for someone such as myself they really fit the bill of what i've been looking for lately man that sam smith song with disclosure is pretty great i love that yeah it's a fucking it called latch yeah latch uh is disclosure are they indie sleaze no i feel like that's too late nah that 2010s indie sleaze is like People who work at Vice listening to future Dirty Sprite 2 or Yeezus. That's a tire. <laughs> that, I don't know if that'll ever come back, but yeah, we are not too far beyond that era. Oh my God. Well, I want to talk about a band that I think has been kind of slept on so far in uh, 2023. They're a French group called In Attendant Anna, and uh, they've been around since 2014. They recently, well, not so recently, released their third record, Principia. It came out in February, and I was I did a quick check, and I feel like it wasn't really reviewed all that much uh, on the big indie sites, even though it come it came out on a pretty well respected label called Trouble in Mind Records, a record a label that I like quite a bit. And this band apparently played one of the Pitchfork festivals in Paris. I think it was maybe in uh, 2019 or so. Uh, but this album, it's a really likable like indie pop record. Uh, I feel like this band gets classified probably because they're on Trouble in Mind in that garage rock camp. But honestly, I think they're just like a good pop band. Like I, I get a, a vibe that's similar to Always when I listen to this band, except it's not as fuzzy as Always. I mean, they really do have that French thing, like where things sound really clean, really breezy. You know, like just think about like Phoenix and Air records like that there's similar qualities to uh this album you know great bass lines really cool instrumental tones and beautiful vocals and just like really well-written songs um and look i talk a lot this time of year about patio music because this is the rare time of year where i can be outside every day i want to hear music that's really good for late spring as we get into early summer and that's definitely true of this band. Uh, so give them a spin if you're going to be on the patio this weekend. I hope you are. Or you're going to be in the backyard. You're going to be in a park, wherever it may be. The band is called In Attendant Anna. The record is called Principia. Prince, Principia? Principia. Principia? Principia? I think that's Something it. like that. Principia. That would be good. And I should be reading it in a French accent, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, this is a really good record. Check it out. Yeah, good I've never record. heard of this band. Um, you know, I'm looking at the They're cover, at it. and it it does look like a garage rock record. Um, it but, it or, does, I, but it's not garagey. 
No. They're not garagey like on record. Again, they have that kind of French thing like where things are just very well put together, very stylish, very breezy. You know, it doesn't have that sort of intentional cacophony or looseness that you get on garage rock records. This is like the opposite of that. It feels very well composed and again, just beautiful pop songs. Like a less fuzzy always is how I would describe it. So good record. Good record for this time of year. Thank you for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.